Hello and welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, where we explore the future of our economy with me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor to the Prime Minister of Business, Technology and Entrepreneurship. Last week, we heard from Ben Francis and Noel Mack, who have built a billion-dollar company in Gymshark. Many of you have joined us since listening to that episode, probably due to their army of social media fans. One of the key missions of this podcast is to inform people about the changing nature of our economy and what is happening at the very forefront of it. One of the most interesting developments of our economy is the section about profit with a purpose, sometimes referred to as tech for good or social enterprises, or perhaps to give it its most formal title, it is what some companies refer to as ESG, the Environmental, Social and Governance Impact. There are a group of entrepreneurs who are at the vanguard of trying to solve these environmental and social challenges. Now, as we have heard on this show, every business starts by trying to solve a problem, whether it's trying to teach children coding or whether it's trying to provide a better banking system for customers. This has always been the purpose of business. If there was a business 101, it would be to find a problem consumers are having and to solve it. But there is a difference between a consumer's problems and social problems. It is obvious to see if a customer has a problem that they might be willing to pay to solve it. However, when it comes to societies and broader social problems, it can be difficult to define who burdens a responsibility. Is it government? Is it charities? This week's guest is Alex Stepany, who is the founder of a company called Beam, which is helping homeless people find careers and new skills through crowdfunding. It is an issue which governments all around the world have to tackle, and it is so complex that it is far more than just pouring more money into it. One of the most powerful things you can do for someone is to give them a job and a sense of purpose. All the entrepreneurs on this show are job creators. Alex is creating opportunities for some of the hardest people to find jobs for. Beam terms itself as a social enterprise, an emergent phrase that comes with the exciting realisation that the roles of being a business or a charity are no longer mutually exclusive. This is something the UK really leads the world in, and Beam is a great example of the power of this combination. We'll be hearing from Alex exactly how Beam works, how the UK job market has shifted as a result of the pandemic, and how sometimes the answer is literally hitting you in the head. But before this episode starts, I have to apologise to our partners, Octopus. Opening with an apology to your partners is never a great look. But in the last episode, I said that they had 9 billion under management. Well, it turns out Octopus now has 10 billion under management. So they have literally added another zero. Octopus invests in the people, ideas and industries that will change the world. Octopus Ventures is one of the largest and most active venture capital investors in Europe, investing in the people and ideas that will change the world because it believes you can build a better tomorrow by investing in it. In this series, we'll be talking about why they have become a B Corp and are leading the charge at this new vanguard of business that we explore in today's episode. Alex, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Hi, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. If you were seeing the Prime Minister at a party, what would be your 90-second pitch to the Prime Minister? I would probably say something like, it's an honour to meet you, Prime Minister. 
My name is Alex Stephanie. I'm an entrepreneur who spent my career running startups with millions of UK customers. I'm also a writer. And a few years ago, I wrote a book on the sharing economy about how companies like Airbnb build online communities to solve hard problems at real scale. Uh, it was only once I began advising the mayor of Seoul that I realized there is this historic opportunity for government to also use online communities to solve big real world problems. And today, as COB, I solve problems you care deeply about inequality, homelessness, and how we can support the most disadvantaged unemployed people in the UK into good jobs. Well, how do we do that? First, we partner with central and local government who referred thousands of people to the Bean platform. These are people who live in homeless hostels and suffer from all kinds of challenges. We give each person a caseworker and a foe if they need one, as well as world-class software to manage their journey into work. And then the community rallies around, donating millions of pounds to fund their employment training and anything else they need and sending messages of support and also job opportunities through the platform. And three years on, this is a proven effective solution. The people we support have been out of work on average five and a half years and start work 76% of the time. We save big money for taxpayers. According to a McKinsey pro bono report, we save taxpayers 31 grand for each person using B. And today we have real traction with local government and a waiting list of cities wanting to launch the Beam service. We've won awards for best tech for good in Europe. And this week was named one of the top 10 startups in London by Wired Magazine. But this is not only about homelessness. Our tech will scale to help all kinds of other groups who need that support, from refugees to care leavers to people with disabilities. So, Prime Minister, please can we speak to your team about how we can scale up this solution so we can use tech to modernize employment services for the most disadvantaged people in the UK while saving taxpayers billions of pounds. It's such an amazing story. And as you outline, Alex, it's a win-win for everyone involved. Where did the light bulb moment come from? We talk about light bulb moments as if it goes from off to on. It's not always that simple or that straightforward. But how did the idea develop in your mind for this? I think it probably was a light bulb moment. And it really all started when I became friends with a homeless man who would sit every day outside my tube station. And uh, he was a, an Irish guy, mid forties. He told me he'd been out of work longer than he could remember. And uh, we became friends. I would buy him cups of coffee and pairs of socks, all of these little things. Then he suddenly disappeared. For about sort of seven weeks, he was just gone. And then when he reappeared, he looked frankly awful. He looked 10 or 15 years older. And I went up to him and I said, what's happened? Where'd he be? And he says, I was in hospital. I had a heart attack. And so we talk and then I'm walking home and I'm really frustrated. that so I've been trying to help this guy, as have other people, as has the government, as have a thousand plus homelessness charities that exist in the UK. And still, he's in a worse position. In fact, this guy is literally dying, sat outside a tube station. And so the light bulb moment is really thinking, well, people like that man don't need a cup of coffee. What they need is support, training, confidence, things that cost a lot more than a cup of coffee. But what if we chip in? What if we could build a crowdfunding platform that would allow 
money to flow into the individuals that need that investment in this country. That was really um, when I began linking up this problem with, I guess, my previous experience writing that book and working with the mayor and just thinking, what if we could actually build a platform that would make it really easy to help people? It sounds like a kind of simple thing, but we have platforms and apps for all kinds of things that you know, often don't matter that much. But actually helping people and getting help is still a massive and unsolved problem. And fundamentally, that's what it does. It connects people who need help, like that man outside their tube station, with thousands of people around the UK who want to help. And not only people, actually, companies as well. So increasingly, companies are using the platform to access a whole new talent pool of people and, and to help them fill their skill shortages. And where did the name Beam come from? It's so important for an entrepreneurial social enterprise organization to have that identity and be able to communicate the message. Where did Beam come from? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and I spent kind of weeks agonizing over you know, how we could come up with, with, with a name. Uh, I knew that I wanted a name that, um, that had really positive connotations. So often um, around these important and you know, serious social problems, there is a, a, a sort of depressing and negative narrative. And for me, just because a problem is serious doesn't mean you need to approach it in a way that is, is negative. Um, and quite the reverse, actually, when you, I mean, when you take a positive approach to a problem, um, you're much more likely to solve it. So I wanted something that was positive. Um, I was also very conscious that the sort of people we were designing the service for needed a lot of support. And so I was also thinking, well, could we maybe work this notion of sort of support into the name as well? And so I spent about three weeks banging my head um, quite literally against um, brick walls and, um, and beams as well. Um, and that is because I live in an old church and there are these big wooden beams that go across my living room. And there was one afternoon where I was literally banging my head against a beam face to face with this thing. And I opened my eyes and the answer was right literally in front of me. And I phoned up people and said, um, uh, it does a beam kind of have connotations of support and positivity. And, uh, they all thought I was, uh, something, you know, I was struggling with and like, yes, Alex, are you okay? Um, and so then we just sort of haven't looked back since then. And it just sort of seems to really work. It's, it's not only about positivity and support. I think it also has these really lovely connotations of, of light and people sort of sometimes talk about how they feel, um, that the service has given them, um, sort of guidance, um, similar to, you know, a way, um, a lighthouse might sort of guide, um, a boat in, into port. So, um, yeah, it all, it all, you know, sometimes I guess more of the story is sometimes you literally need to bang your head against something to, to get the answers to questions. And what are the types of jobs that you're training these people for? And what do you see the jobs of the, of the future being? And how has that been impacted by the pandemic? It's always been about filling skill shortages for employers. And you know, the thing that always struck me as, as, as a little bit crazy is that we have groups in the UK who are, you know, are struggling with high unemployment. And we have individuals who are very, very long-term unemployed, and these are the type of people that we work with have been. And yet still, we live in an economy where across the board, unemployment is, is largo. 
and you know we're all extremely fortunate to live in a in a in an economy that is very very strong relatively to the overwhelming majority of other countries so it's always really been about actually let's try and match individuals um with uh, opportunities for them in economies and um filling skills gaps for companies at the same time as we can bring new opportunities for people who need them so um in the context of the pandemic it has been roles in sectors like healthcare and caring logistics uh, security those would be probably our top sectors we're seeing retail and construction picking up and i think what's really helped um companies to kind of seize this opportunity to bring different types of individuals into their businesses and to help them uh, fill their open roles with different types of talent is that I think many employers these days are approaching hiring with a really fresh pair of eyes compared to, you know, three or four years ago. And I think that a lot of that has, um, has come from uh, Black Lives Matter and the way that companies are of rethinking their hiring practices and rethinking how they can be more equitable. And then I think part of that has come from COVID and um, kind of necessity being the mother of invention and this rapid readjustment of, you know, what the jobs market is like and this sort of scramble to move people you know, into open roles. Um, and so often the roles that have been uh, open have been roles that you know, we've urgently needed. So we have, you know, people from Beam who are working for Thames Water, ensuring that, you know, people in the pandemic can continue to get water and, you know, fundamental things like that, 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 that we all need, or, you know, delivering their, their, their emergency goods um, and food and all of these things. So um, I think both of those things have kind of catalyzed um, this migration of, I, I guess, like new and exciting talent into, into open roles. And what's the formula that you use for making a, a success of it? Because during my time in government, you know, the homelessness crisis is always a huge challenge. And actually putting more money from the government into it isn't always a silver bullet because there's a whole variety and complex nature of these issues. Part of it simply, of course, is tracking people that are homeless and being able to communicate and engage with them. What is your formula for using that over, because some of these people are, are training for, you know, complex jobs like electricians and so on, which takes a a good period of time to do that. What's your yeah. formula for making sure there's a success? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think that what has probably helped is, has been that we have not been in the sector. We're to some extent sort of outsiders and we've approached these problems with really, really fresh eyes. And I think the first problem we saw is that people who are long-term unemployed, they really lack confidence. And they often lack support networks and they often lack professional networks. It's really important that we design around that. So uh, when people are using the Beam platform, they have on average about 250 people who are supporting them, making donations to fund the things that they need and also sending messages. The average person receives 115 messages of support. And that is massively valuable in, in boosting people's confidence and creating more opportunities for them. We also see that um, people experience financial barriers and you know, it's staggering the number of people who remain long-term unemployed because maybe they don't have 300 quid to buy something that they need to get back into that job. 
And so we use this crowdfunding platform to remove any financial barrier that someone may experience. And um, that could be training, as you mentioned, Jimmy, but it also might be childcare. Uh, we work a lot with single mums who are often blocked from getting back into the jobs market because of childcare expenses. And we're funding equipment and tools and textbooks and laptops and phones and all of these little things that actually can become really significant barriers for people and keep people out of the jobs market for a long time. I think another thing we're doing is giving people agency and giving people the option to move into really good variety of good jobs. And again, that's quite a different approach to the traditional one where maybe you would use an employment service that would offer you two roles. They might, they both might be really ill-suited to your skills and experience. And unsurprisingly, people do not often uh, do well when it comes to getting those jobs and sustaining those jobs. So we partner with a big range of companies um, from Uber to Ocado to and the NHS um, and then the scale-up businesses like uh, Getir, um, Gorillas, uh, All Plants. Um, and we give people a good selection of jobs. And I think that's a really simple idea, but it makes a huge difference. And, you know, speaking from experience, I've been in work that's been really ill-suited to me and it's been miserable and I've not been able to sustain that job. And then I've been in jobs that have been really well suited to my skills and experience. And so you know, we need to take that same approach with people who are long-term unemployed. There is not really going to be a sort of, you know, one size fits all opportunity um, that we can use for individuals who are long-term unemployed. So you know, what's really important is that there's a huge amount of choice, flexibility, and personalization on, on the service as well. Uh, just to touch on your personal journey there, because I think it's interesting you say about not being happy in, in some roles and, and wanting a change. And of course, jobs and roles change over the period of time. You know, when you start a company in a role after a couple of years, you want a fresh challenge. What sort of process do you use for finding out that next challenge? And one of the things that I was particularly interested in your reflections on were we first met when you were running the sharing economy company, Just Park. And one of the things they did, of course, was raise at the time the biggest crowdfunding raise um, in the UK. I think it was five million pounds at the time. And I was just curious to almost use the Steve Jobs analogy of each part of his career was about joining the dots. How relevant that has been for your career? Because obviously the Just Park crowdfunding round probably was part of the idea that led to Beam, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. I guess when you look back, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, isn't it? And at the time, things can seem random or unclear. And it's only later that you realize there is a kind of, you know, crazy narrative. Yeah, definitely. When we did that crowdfunding round, um, it kind of blew up. And we ended up with thousands of shareholders. And I remember thinking, well, this is great, but could we use crowdfunding for other things? And maybe there are more socially valuable things we can use crowdfunding for than funding parking startups. And I didn't know what that answer looked like at the time. And, you know, I can go even further back to a time when I was working at a charity in London as a, uh, as a lawyer. And we were providing legal advice to some of the, the, the most disadvantaged people in London. And, you know, I would give these sort of law clinics and people would just come in 
person after person for hours on end. I felt so powerless because really I was just sort of responding to emergencies all these people were experiencing. I was thinking, well, actually, I don't, I, I want to give these people the opportunity to not get into these, you know, terrible situations in the first place. And then I guess I can look back further and go, well, I, you know, after school, I went and studied English literature and I had no idea that that would be at all useful in anything I would ever do in my life. Um, but I guess, you know, the benefit of hindsight, I think one of the things I've learned about running startups is storytelling is so, so powerful. Now I can sit here and I can say that there are 330,000 people who live in homeless accommodation in the UK and 120,000 of them are kids. Now I can throw stats at you all day. But it's really the stories on the Dean platform that are bringing this problem to life. And Alex, you talk about there, you've always been at the kind of forefront of tech for good and that whole space, which is, is developing. And, and on your website, you describe yourself as a social impact business. And I was just thinking if you could explain to the listeners a little bit about what that means to you, because you're not an out and out charity, but you're also not an out and out for profit business. And there's a very exciting space that's opening up here that the, the UK leads the world in, in terms of social enterprises, but how do you define it? And what does it mean to you? That's such an interesting area. So I think big picture. Throughout most of history, people have thought there are two types of organizations. There are businesses and they exist to make as much money as possible for shareholders. And, you know, they should abide by the law and pay their tax and do all of that stuff. But like fundamentally, the only thing they really exist to do is to make money. And then there are charities and charities are supported by the businesses and other people and they do the good. I think one of the things we've seen um, over the last, uh, you know, couple of decades is that both of those models are imperfect in some ways. Um, businesses and, you know, a, a simplistic capitalist model that is just about shareholder value can wreak devastation on communities and devastation on the planet. Charities uh, really struggle to scale to meet the enormous challenges they exist to solve. And so... What impact business is about is really finding a third way where we're saying, actually, business can and must be a force for good in society. And we can bring some of the scale and ambition of a business with some of the ethical values of a charity. And specifically what an impact business is, um, is a business that has and I guess this is more my definition, but I'm sure I'm not the first person to think of it in this way, that has first and foremost, um, social or environmental KPIs. So I could be a social impact business because our most important KPIs, the one that exists on our monitors and we talk about as a team are our social KPIs. We're tracking the number of people who start jobs, the number of people who we support into homes. That's another service that we more recently launched, and then how these individuals are sustaining jobs and homes. Those social metrics are what actually drives the company because we work with government and government is paying us for those services. 
and they're paying us um, for each person that we support into a job and a home. So we can really, really focus on creating measurable social impact, first and foremost. And really as a side product of that, um, we grow as a company. Uh, and for me, like, it's all about keeping these really, really tightly aligned incentives. And so all we do as a company is focus on helping more and more people better and better. I think it's such a fantastic answer. And it's, it's so interesting, this whole space of business becoming more aware of the impact that it's having. And, you know, the partners on this podcast, Octopus, have just become a B Corp, which we'll be diving into more at some stage. Such an interesting world that we're in now, post-pandemic, of how business, government works together to provide yep. these social metrics that you talk about. And it's so interesting that those are what you're measuring day by day as a, um, as a success. More broadly, what are the trends that you're seeing in the job market? And also at Beam, you're hiring a lot at the moment. We were talking just beforehand, how you were enjoying being, having the questions fired at you because most of the time you're hiring for people. Can you explain some of the roles that you're hiring for directly at Beam and what skills you're looking for there? And more broadly, the trends that you're seeing in the, in the job market, particularly in the technology side of things. Yeah, sure. I mean, even before doing that, I just want to pick up on something you said, Jimmy, which is around government working more with entrepreneurs and tech companies. And I think, and I don't know, hopefully this will resonate with some of your listeners. I've always sort of been frustrated by the government bashing, for want of a better term, that is so prevalent. And, you know, a lot of people who've never worked in government a day um, will just kind of routinely slag off everyone in government um, for being completely utterly useless. And, you know, of course, the public sector, like any sector, has a variety of people, and some of those people are amazing, and some of those people are not amazing. You know, one of the areas where I think entrepreneurs have struggled and failed is bringing more solutions to government. And I, th I think it's really up to every stakeholder to to add value in the best way that it can to play to its strengths. You know, when I think about how we can actually make progress as a society and as an economy, I think entrepreneurs need to be bringing you know, innovative, scalable, cheap solutions to government. And I don't think we've done enough of that. And government needs to be playing to its strengths, which I think most people in government would agree is not building technology cheaply and quickly. What I'm really excited about is this new, um, this new movement in GovTech. And I think, you know, how we can build closer and closer ties between government and between entrepreneurs. I think this is, you know, it has the potential to you know, transform the lives of everyone in the, in the UK for the better if we get this interplay of ideas uh, better, such that people in government are communicating the problems they face and entrepreneurs are are building problem, uh, sorry, building solutions that, that address those problems. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, one reflection I have, because we could do an entire podcast on government and business interaction, is just that it is always a challenge in terms of the cultures. Government is slow, cumbersome, likes to plan, you know, years in advance and entrepreneurs yep. want things done yesterday. Um, but I, I agree with everything you say and, you know, wholeheartedly trying to uh to make a difference um by informing both sides because 
but you know, unlike the states, for example, where you get a lot of cross pollination, you don't actually get much of that here between government business and academia to a certain degree as well. But I agree with you that it is it's not a simple process to know where to go in government to get your idea through. And I, I mean, I think there's a lot of great work being done in this area by you and um, public and, and all kinds of other um, organizations. And I think we are definitely headed in the right direction, which is tremendously exciting. Um, but I also realized I've ducked your original question, Jimmy. So I'll, I'll answer that, which is around uh, jobs at Beam. And yeah, Beam's a really unusual company because we are kind of a combination of the tech startup and um, an employability services organization as well. So on the one hand, we are hiring for, you know, you know, sort of traditional tech startup roles like software engineers and product managers and all that sort of stuff. And on the other hand, we hire operational people who deliver the service um, to all of the um, homeless individuals and other disadvantaged people using, using B. So um, at the moment, we're a team of um, 33 and we are trying to hire uh, 30 people. Hence me, yes, benching lots of times in, in, in job interviews. Oh, well, I'm sure you're going to get quite a few applications. If listeners of previous podcasts are anything to go by um, following your, your pitch on this, what is the best way that listeners can get involved? If they don't want to come and apply and work full time, as we've just been talking about, what are the other ways they can get involved? Well, whoever you are, you can go to beam.org and you can meet the people using the service. You can read their story and you can support them. And every single penny that is donated is held by us and used to purchase the things that people need. And then you get to share each person's journey into housing or work. So um, that's for anyone. Um, if you are an employer, you should definitely look at hiring from B. We work with all kinds of businesses from scale-up tech companies to listed businesses to provide them with new talents for free to fill their open roles. So get in touch if you're hiring. If you are a job seeker, um, get in touch with B because we have 30 plus open roles straddling engineering to operations, to business development, to public sector partnerships and, and much, much more. And you can see all of those opportunities on beam.org forward slash careers. Finally, and um, perhaps most importantly, given um, this podcast, if you work in government and you would like to see Beam in your city or your local authority or nationwide, then get in touch. Um, we are always looking to uh, collaborate more with the public sector. We are working now in half of London boroughs and we have a waiting list of cities who want to have the Beam service where they live. So get in touch if you would like to chat. On which parts of government are you already working with? Because I know you've got some strong relations already. So we work with uh, local authorities and then we work with the Department of Work and Pensions. So um, as you know, well, Jimmy, that's sort of the big, big departmental beast um, that is primarily responsible for supporting people um, who are unemployed, among many other things. So um, yeah, those are the two types of customers we, we have at the moment. And what would be your advice on how to build back better, how to level up? Um, that is um, it's a big topic, but I think the first thing I would say is um, 
let's use the technology that we've all relied on to get through this pandemic or hopefully to get through this pandemic. So, um, Zoom is a great example of that. So, um, what we started doing at Beam is, um, allowing people to have all of their consultations online through Zoom. And there was a narrative that, you know, you shouldn't digitize, you shouldn't do things like allow people to, um, access services, um, via video call because, um, it was, um, actually not an accessible, um, way of delivering service. I think we've seen absolutely the opposite of that, which is that, um, if you can give people access to a service, you can give them the hardware. It does massive things for the accessibility of that service. There's so many of the people using B, um, they are single moms living in refuges and, uh, they have all kinds of other responsibilities and it's not really practical for them to trek across a large city and wait in a queue to see someone for 15 minutes. It's just not possible for them to take an entire afternoon off and to pay for the travel to get there and back. Um, and they just press a few buttons and they can speak to their advisor on their phone. So the first thing I'd say is use the existing, um, technologies. I think the other thing I would say is you know, obviously we need to keep innovating if we're going to build back better. That I think is a, you know, a completely uh, you know, it's a, it's a complete given. Um, and if you look at the problem we work on, which is long-term unemployment and homelessness, then these sectors have barely changed in, in decades. So, um, you know, let's use technology and let's, and let's make sure we're continuing to intentionally innovate on this stuff. And I think the other thing I would say is, um, let's try and be as transparent as possible. I think transparency has always been really important to us. Um, when people use the service, they can see exactly who they've helped. They can see where their money's gone to the pound. And, uh, we do a lot of transparency with our government partners as well. So they can see, um, exactly how their service has helped people, the numbers, um, of people that it's helped and how they're progressing. And they can also see cashable savings related to those individuals. And I think transparency is going to be so, so important if we're going to build back better. And, and one of the crazy ideas that I've had is that government should employ a CTO, not a chief technology officer, a chief transparency officer. And it should be this person's job to, in a thoughtful and managed way, to slowly open up uh, government um, to a more transparent approach. And I think there's a few big reasons for that. You know, the first is that, as we talked about earlier, it's really important that entrepreneurs can solve problems for government. So, um, it's therefore really important that government can, uh, be transparent about the, the challenges it's facing. And I think the other thing is, is around trust. You know, I don't think anyone really buys it. If a politician stands up and pretends that absolutely everything is hunky dory, that's not what people want to hear. And, and I think it's much, it's a much better strategy really to be authentic and to talk about what's going well, but also to talk about, you know, where the government needs to do better. And I don't know the, quite the right way to deliver that, but it does feel like a missing piece and that someone could be in government, that kind of chief transparency officer role, slowly taking the government to a place of greater transparency and trust with, with the population that it serves. I think it's a very good idea. And I know that some civil servants would be, uh, would be aghast by it particularly in the Ministry of Defence, about transparency. Well, I agree. 
I agree with you that it is a um, a fascinating thing. And government is trying to do more in that area, but particularly post-Brexit, post-Corona, I think people are inevitably going to be more interested in what their government do and the way that they go about it. So I certainly think it's a, it's an interesting thing for us to to talk about. One question that I wanted to ask was that of those 30 roles that you're hiring for, if people are so inspired uh, by you and the Beam story that they wanted to be involved, you're actually looking for a chief of staff. I'm intrigued because this is an idea that's come from the military and, and politics, but is making its way more and more in startup worlds. Whether you could explain what, what a chief of staff does and you know, what, what type of skills you're looking for in that role. Yeah, well, startups have always loved cool job titles. I think uh, <laughs> that's fairly self-evident. And uh, chief of staff is definitely a cool job title. So you know, what does a chief of staff do? I mean, I'm, for me, a chief of staff is someone that helps the person they work for to be a more effective leader. As they're kind of an extension of that person um, they will solve different problems by working with different people. It's an inherently, incredibly varied job. Uh, but you know, truth be told, I've not had a chief of staff before. So, you know, I'm sure there are people listening to this who could, could answer that question much, much better than me. But I think, you know, one of the things I have noticed, um, running startups is you know, one of the really important things is to delegate as much as you possibly can so that as big a percentage of the work you do do is work that only you can do, you know, how you solve that or how you solve that problem or answer that question is, you know, kind of an important one in any rapidly scaling organization. I'd love to know, actually, I mean, maybe a conversation for another time, you know, how people running government departments or the prime minister, you know, deal with this because, you know, they probably have more on my, on their plates than, than I can ever imagine. It is an interesting role and it's so critical. And I often used to think that the only person busier in the country than the prime minister was probably the prime minister's chief of staff because everyone expected to be able to see the chief of staff. Whereas most people realized they couldn't see the prime minister at any given week, yeah. but most people did expect they could see the, the, the chief of staff. So yeah, no, really interesting. And as a final thought, you are an author yourself and have written a, um, a great book on the sharing economy. Um, but what is a book that's particularly helped you on your journey? So I would recommend a book called Radical Help by Hilary Cotton. And it's got some super interesting ideas. And one of them is this idea of relational welfare. And relational welfare is really about getting support from other people rather than constantly from the government. Because the, I guess, model of welfare um, support that we have today is one that uh, was built in the aftermath of the Second World War. And it looked very much like a kind of command and control model um, where things are incredibly centralized. Um, and that works in some respects, but it can also be very inefficient and it can also be very dehumanizing. What we're building at Beam is, I think, an example of how you can use technology to build bridges between people. And, you know, one of the things I, I guess I've learned over, you know, last decade or two in life is that people tend to respond much better to other people than organizations and institutions. The internet now makes these kinds of sort of distributed community driven models of support possible. And 
at a really high level, I think, you know, one of the big questions we need to answer is how do you rebuild the welfare state for a post-internet era? Because I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, if you were starting from scratch, what you would build today in terms of welfare support um, and the NHS would just look really, really, really different uh, to what we have. And moving from pre-internet models to post-internet models, I think it's probably one of the biggest challenges um, facing government. Um, if we can pull it off, we can build services that are so much better and so much cheaper, we can probably barely even conceive of them. I think that is a fascinating discussion, which we should definitely return to later in the year in person at some stage. Um, and we, yeah, we're exploring different book clubs, models and so on. So perhaps we could, uh, we could use that early on in the, in the process. Alex, it's been amazing to have you on. Your journey is so inspiring and what you're trying to achieve at Beam is so important. So thanks for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you very much for having me, Jimmy. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode in the third series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Word of mouth is everything in the audio world. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and send us to a friend. You can find us at Jimmy's Jobs on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. You can also check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co for our episode archive, blog posts and more. If you are a new listener, do look through our previous episodes. We've interviewed entrepreneurs disrupting industries from fintech to hospitality to modern engineering. So whatever sector you're interested in, there'll be something for you there. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Thanks to our producer, Leo Danchak, and thanks to George de Cleland for the artwork.